This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to the morning break with Graham Stanley. Today's my 25th show, and I've decided to look back at them all and provide a snapshot of the topics I've covered and a sampling of what the guests that I've had on so far talked about. Hopefully, after listening, you'll decide to listen back to one or two you've missed. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So, welcome to the morning break, everyone. I'm Graham, speaking to you live from Mexico City. And as I mentioned in the introduction, as this is my 25th show, today I'll be taking a look at uh, who I've spoken to and the topics I've covered so far. And uh, hopefully uh, one of one or two of these will appeal to you and you may be tempted to go back and listen to the whole show. I hope so. They're all available, so what's, what's to stop you? Um, let's, uh, well, there'll be more from me right after the teacher talk radio news. This episode of teachers talk radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
The Daily Mirror runs a story on school places with headlines claiming that in some areas where schools are oversubscribed, nearly 9 out of 10 parents do not get a place for their child at their first choice secondary school. The article names specific schools in Wolverhampton and Lambeth as the hardest secondary schools to get into, with the primary from Liverpool named as the most difficult to get into. As children return to school for the new academic year, applications for those set to start primary or secondary in September 2023 are set to open soon. The deadline for secondary places is October 31st and January the 15th next year for primary. According to figures published in the article, 83% of applicants got their first choice of secondary school for September 2022, a small increase on the 2021 figure of 81%. The proportion of primary school applicants who received their first choice remained at 92%. A full list of England's most oversubscribed schools is published on the Daily Mirror website. In Scotland, council workers due to go out on strike next week have suspended their action after unions received a new pay offer from local authority leaders. The Unison, Unite and GMB unions agreed to suspend strikes in education and in waste services. The Unison, Unite and GMB unions agreed to suspend strikes in education and in waste services. The high-profile waste worker strike has seen rubbish build up in city centres, but action was also set to affect schools and early years provision as members of Unison were set to walk out. Aberdeen Live also reports on possible strike action by Scottish teachers after what unions describe as an insulting pay offer. The 5% pay increase was rejected by the Educational Institute of Scotland's Executive Committee and they have opened a ballot for members concerning industrial action. Members of the union have until the 16th of September to vote on the action. Following the return to school for the new academic year, Eastern Eye reports on advice to schools around school attendance. The advice recommends close partnership work with councils, targeted family support and home visits to address barriers to attendance. These form part of a package of new approaches to ensure that more children are in school every day. The Department for Education is also launching a three-year one-to-one attendance monitoring pilot aimed at tackling the factors behind non-attendance such as bullying and mental health issues. The scheme will be launched in Middlesbrough this year before expanding to other areas next year. A new attendance data visualisation tool is also expected later in September. In some countries on the continent of Africa, a significant barrier to school attendance comes as a result of pregnancy in adolescent girls, according to Human Rights Watch. The organisation says that whilst many countries now have laws and policies in place to protect girls' education, there are still shortcomings, with at least 10 African Union member countries still having no laws related to protecting the retention of students who are pregnant or are adolescent mothers. More on this story can be found on the Human Rights Watch website. In Wales, mandatory sex education lessons will go ahead in the new school term as the High Court rules in favour of the plan. A group of five parents lost their legal challenge to block the lessons in a hearing on the 31st of August. The group wanted to withdraw their children from the mandatory lessons or stop the rollout of relationships and sexual education altogether. The parents had already been granted a judicial review to be heard in November. RSE is part of the statutory new curriculum in Wales although half of secondary schools are delaying the new curriculum until 2023. This is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
Hello, this week I complete my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The topic today is why is my upload speed lower than my download speed? In previous episodes, we've discussed bandwidth and the more devices, the more demand, but internet service providers only tend to advertise their download speed. Why is this? Well, because it's higher. Let's take a trip back to the beginning of the internet for general public use. If you're old enough to remember dial-up and what we used to use the internet for pre-2006 when we were introduced to the Facebook boom, the internet was more like a library. You go, search for a book or a web page, use the book for your research, then return it. Traffic or knowledge is mostly one way, downloading to you. The only real use for uploading for the day-to-day -day user of the internet was to request a web page, a very small amount of data, and to send the odd email. Most things we did were all based on downloading. This is called an asymmetric connection. Downloading is given more bandwidth as it's the most used. This to date is still the fact. Most people download more than they upload. With data transmission being restricted by the size of transmission media being used, it makes sense for there to be more bandwidth dedicated to downloading than to uploading. Uploading has become increasingly more important for people since the development of apps like Facebook. Although developed in 2004, in 2006, due to increasingly better phone technology and the trend of documenting your life and posting it for others to see, the speed that you can upload has become more important. However, if a video or image takes a while to upload, we can do something else. If what you're watching stops, it's the end of the world. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. As we return to work, why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech for the new academic year. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome back everybody. In the first bunch of extracts of the 25 shows that I've had so far on Teachers Talk Radio, you'll hear UK MFL teacher Joe Dale enthuse about using audio with learners. And that will be directly followed by Alicia Artusi, the Argentine English language educator, talking about the power of observation. And following this, there's an extract from show number three, featuring Raquel Ribeiro. Hi, Raquel. Raquel has joined me in live in the studio, along with Mr. Kohli from India and a couple of others who've dropped in. And Raquel will be uh, talking about the metaverse and virtual reality. Next up are influential US educators, Alice Barr and Cheryl Oaks, who joined me for a special show celebrating International Women's Day in March. And then for show number five, I tried my first solo show focusing upon the range of apps available for the self-learning of languages. We will start, however, with show number one, when I invited my friend, modern foreign language teacher and podcasting wizard to be my first guest, dedicating the show to podcasting and using audio with learners and teachers. To start us off then, here's Joe Dale talking about why he likes using audio with learners. There's so many potential ideas and, and also another reason I really like audio in relation to say storytelling is podcasting is almost like a, a mirror on the mind. In other words, 
you make up your own pictures in your own head by listening to the audio. And there's nothing better than hearing children recording their voices, expressing themselves, promoting student voice, talking about a story in their own words, in their own voice. It's fantastic. Yes, no, definitely. I think it's, um, it's a wonderful thing to do. So you've talked about lots of different tools there, Joe, which I think is great. We shouldn't um, put teachers off as well, though, I think, you know. So you've talked about this a little bit already with um, how teachers can get started. But what are your real recommendations, apart from some of the things you, you've suggested? How would teachers start working with learners in the classroom, for example? Do you think it's something that they should just try to adapt their, if they're working with a course book or or another way? Or is there a way that you think it would be good for teachers to introduce this idea of creating audio, of creating a podcast and, and sharing it? How would they get started, really? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a number of different options. I think whenever you're recording audio, you want to really have a sort of like a, a quiet environment to work in. Obviously, and obviously, a classroom environment is not a quiet environment. You will get background sounds and what have you. So you could, for example, set up a podcasting club whereby you have the really enthusiasts who actually edit and put the audio together. You could get the students to record at home using a tool like Vokaroo, et cetera, sending the, the link to the teacher and then download all the audio and give it out to the people in the club to then put it together into a podcast because it does take a while to edit podcasts and put them together. So it might be an idea to have the enthusiasts to do that, but just have everyone recording their audio. So doing all that um, preparation and getting them to write their scripts and to rehearse it in the way that you would normally do. But just the icing on the cake is the capturing the recording of it so it doesn't just go off into the ether. You've got the, a recording of that uh, discussion or that uh, individual person's audio and then edit it all together. You could at the same time, you could obviously do the same thing, say, in a in an ICT room, everyone could be using Audacity and could be using, say, Soundtrap to edit it together as well. That'd be another option. But I think starting off small, looking at your curriculum, looking at a topic which lends itself particularly well to podcasting, maybe talking about that ideal holiday or what they did last weekend or describing their daily routine. In relation to daily routine, you could, for example, ask the students to record little sound effects at home and then incorporate them into Audacity project. I was taking part in a in a podcasting online workshop recently, and that was exactly the task. I think the power of observation is not only observing the teacher's practice, but also observing classroom situations that the teachers got to deal with. And they see the and, and if they see the observer as a person who can, with it, because of of his or her expertise, can help solve or or address these issues then the teachers are more welcome to open doors and being observed because they see the observer as the person who can uh, provide support. And of course, they are very honest about all the challenges in the classroom and outside the classroom. Uh, now there are several ways of uh, keeping in touch with people uh, through social media, communities of practice. And, and so what we need is the teacher's honesty to say what's, ha what's happening, what the challenges are. And if a teacher before being observed because of quality reasons or quality assessment can ask the observer come to my classroom i want to see this the behavior of this particular student it's only one student but disrupts the whole class every time he or she does this for example or um wants to call everybody's attention stands up pushes people okay what can i do when this happens even the 
some other people in the school do not know how, what to do and how to deal with it. After the observer observes the situation, then the observer can also ask for support to other professionals. In my case, for example, I was in a community of practice of special needs in a group of people with expertise on the area of, of um, special needs. And so I asked the community, this is what's happening in the classroom. What would you do or what's normally done with the students? And they provided a number of, of suggestions. So what we have here is the observer as the person with the knowledge and expertise to observe a classroom situation and then support the teachers to make learning better because the teacher is part of a process it's part of a of, of a, let's say a bigger objective which is to educate the students the metaverse has to do with technologies coming together and we haven't got like a model oh it's exactly like this but it blends aspects of digital technologies and it's kind of blends video conferencing and games like uh, virtual reality related and social media and live streaming and the avatar a bit of uh, lego looking avatar still but it's there and the most ambitious side of it, uh, at least right now, is getting to a point where this physical reality will merge with the digital universe, which is really, really crazy. But again, uh, every time there's something new, if we travel back a few years and we look at the concept of what a mobile phone used to be in the beginning and now it's a smartphone and, and so on and so forth we see there's a plan and there's a design and a dream projected but there is what is actually possible to be used in the daily lives and this goes for everything um jen wagner had a great idea to get some women together to be a force at um, technology conference or the ISTE conference. And, you know, mo back in the day, most of the presenters, the keynotes were um, men and they were, you know, great speakers, but their women's voice was not represented. And so four of us, Sharon Brown Peters and Jen Wagner, Vicki Davis and myself got together all virtually for the first year we never met each other until we went to an ISTE conference and we just started that same kind of um podcasting trying to get people to network being a supportive community and bringing in speakers to share an experience um and you know we had a lot of laughs we, we had um you know great support for one another we were all blogging at the time and so I think, you know, for us, the four of us, it was really about giving that voice of women a platform. Now, generally speaking, self-learning requires a number of things you can do to make it successful. The first of these is to allow yourself to be curious. This will make your self-learning journey more enjoyable, easier said than done, perhaps. But allowing yourself to be curious will also help with your motivation to learn, which is another important factor. Why do you want to learn the language? 
what do you want to use the language for? If it's just to be able to speak a few words while you're on holiday, then that's quite different than if you plan to use it as a gateway to help you study or improve your opportunities for work. It's also one of the most important factors to understand before you start on your journey learning a language, which is probably going to be a long one. If you want to learn a language in order to be able to enjoy literature, in the language of your choice, then that requires a very different strategy than if your reasons are because you wish to hold conversations with people who speak the language. Now, once you have that clear, you can set goals and this will help you increase productivity and improve your focus. It's also good at this time, I think, to establish how much time you have available, how much time you're going to set aside for language learning. And I recommend blocking the time in, a, in your calendar, if you can, to make it regular. It's much better to block a small amount of time every day than one or two large chunks of time each week. That's how language learning works, of course. A little a little every day is much more productive than a large amount a couple of times a week. Little and often is the key. And this is another reason why these apps can help you because they're all designed to help you take advantage of the small blocks of time you have available to you to help you learn in practice. That might be on your commute or during your lunch break or while you're waiting for someone. It all helps. Although you may be doing this on your own, if you can find someone else to talk to, to practice with, then that will help with motivation as well, as well as giving you a real person to actually practice the language you're learning with, which I think is very important. Perhaps you can persuade your partner to learn or a colleague or a family member, a friend. And then from time to time, you can meet up and share what you've learned. That will also help you hold yourself to account. And welcome back. Uh, you're listening to The Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio. I'm Graham, and I'm looking back on the 24, 25 shows I've done. Well, this is the 25th one I've done so far. Show number six featured an interview with Doris Molero from Venezuela, talking about a project for peace she did with her students. And the show after this was an experimental one that featured a collection of poems by educators about the war in Ukraine selected from a book aimed at raising awareness and funds for the country. For show number eight, I talked to Emma Rogers of Little Bridge about technology and children, and Kiara Duggan, who has joined me here with, uh, along with Rocky, Raquel, and a couple of other people in the show, was guest of my show number nine. She was talking about digital portfolios and learner autonomy and, the, and how you can use the wonderful app Bulb um, the system for digital portfolios for that. I highly recommend checking that out. And the 10th show I did had no guests. During that show, I spoke, spoke about using computer games in the classroom with children. And extracts from these you can hear next. But first, the second set of extracts from shows 6 to 10 starts with show number 7 and a poem for Ukraine set to music and performed by John Rowe and Not Saints called Let Them In. Knocking at our door, children, grandmothers, mothers, young women, let them in. 
door. time Venezuela was going through the first uh, demonstrations and problems that we have yeah. and my university was at the co in a corner that was a very popular corner it is a very popular corner in, in my home city Maracaibo and outside there were the protests people getting angry and even in the classroom you, you have a, a class that was divided ones were pro the other was against uh, so to keep peace in the classroom, it was like, okay, this is the kind of project that we need. We need to talk, yeah. uh, we, we need words for peace, okay? So this was a project in Facebook. And then we started crossing portals, okay? We started crossing platforms because uh, that was uh, in Facebook. Then you have a website where you were supposed to post your face with a message for peace. I use it in my class. We talk about, we, should, we learn the vocabulary of peace. We talk about the problem that we were having. And at the same time, uh, with all that we produce, because my students produce, send those pictures to, to the site and they, they, they published the book. That was wow. a book with 10,000 faces from around the world with messages of peace. So it was Wonderful. connecting the classroom to uh, uh, something that was going on at the moment, uh, connected to your own reality, mm -hmm. learning the language, learning wh what to say to participate in this, you know? It's, <laughs> and it's something that is happening right now also. And this problem in Venezuela started a long time ago. I, I am, I've been here as a result, I, I am here for six years and it's still happening, uh, it's still yeah. happening. So that's why uh, another project that I am working now in, in virtual worlds related to social issues, related to our, our reality, 
it's to advocate because people think, oh, that happened, that's over, you know, that no. what Venezuela, what happened there is, but it's not, it's still happening. And as a matter of fact, is right now, before this presentation, uh, when uh, you entered, you saw me that I was writing, I was answering to a group of Venezuelans that are refugees. They are trying no. to find their way to get to Uruguay. What about using EdTech with young children? What What do you think are the main challenges for teachers or for parents uh, that exist? Well, as I can start from, you know, answer that question from the point of view of a parent, and that is screen yeah. time. I mean, I yeah. was um, constantly telling my children to get off their devices or, you know, I mean, um, and they're all much bigger now, but um, at the time they were completely you know, wired up and hooked on, you know, quite social things sometimes. I mean, as I said, I had four of them, so they quite often used to play together and also play, um, you know, via different in, um, communities, which also threw up lots of alarm bells for me because I mm. felt that these were communities that were unmoderated, un, uncurated. So I wasn't very happy about that. But I think screen time is one of the the biggest challenges because we know we all know um how addictive um you know devices are we're all guilty of that but um but so so i mean again um going back to to littlebridge i mean we definitely advocate little and often you know um and in this idea you know in other words we we don't see it as a as a valuable data point to have kids glued to to um, the platform for for hours at a time that's that's not a goal so that would be my first thing is just that the the, the challenges to um to, to use screen time positively and not overuse it um secondly again um in terms of challenges it's the the uh, one we've just been talking about the the problems of access um both devices and connectivity and the the um the inequalities that you can create yourself by by you know by encouraging kids to learn via the internet and then finding out that an awful lot of them can't do it um I suppose the final real um, sort of challenge is um, focus on news, the focus on that needs to happen on usability. In other words, um, obviously age appropriate content, um, safeguarding, and also just actual the user interface. We we did a lot of research on, you know, the the kind of um, most. Uh, helpful and usable interfaces for children of the age group we're targeting um, because although obviously children are very screen savvy um, there are still things that you can do um, that that improve usability and then obviously help to improve um, your um, outcomes and meet the objectives that you've set so yeah they've been the biggest challenges and the things that we feel we're always on a kind of continuous learning journey for that and the need for digital portfolios is also rising around the world and that is in um, formal education settings as well as people looking for jobs i think it was muse who are a um, careers recruitment agency in america who said that now it is unusual for people not to have a digital portfolio, particularly when so many of us have got a digital presence. And I think 
maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but we have all learned to digital literacy or unlocked the digital literacy in ourselves over the last couple of years that we didn't realize we had. So keep that momentum going by helping record your own learning journey and also the learning journey of those around you within Bull as a platform. And I'm absolutely delighted, Graham, to hear that your brother wants to use it with his children. That's what the bulb was made for. That is where it began. Parents wanting to empower and gift their children a record of their learning journey. Now let's consider something that I posted on Twitter yesterday that Chris Crawford, a well-known game designer, wrote in his book, The Art of Computer Game Design. The question, can games have educational value, is absurd. It is not games, but schools that are the newfangled notion, the untested fad, the violator of tradition. Game playing is a vital educational function for any creature capable of learning. It's not just kids either, is it? Play can make learning more productive and pleasurable for adults too. Playing in games help us be more flexible, more creative, resilient, and can be a great source of happiness. For most 21st century learners, digital games are what they spend most of their free time engaging with. It's not just about playing computer games either. It's what they spend their time talking about with their friends. And they also learn while doing this. Here's another provocative quote. The theory of learning in good video games fits better with the modern high-tech global world today's children and teenagers live in than do the theories and practices of learning that they see in school. Again, quite strong stuff. That's a quote from John Paul G, a linguist and educator from a book that is highly recommended, or at least I highly recommend reading, What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning in Literature. There's another book I also recommend by D.W. Schaeffer, S-H-A-F-F-E-R, which is called How Computer Games Help Children to Learn. In it, he says, computer and video games make it possible for students to learn to think in innovative and creative ways, just as innovators in the real world learn to think creatively. I strongly believe that introducing the kind of play featured in video games into our classrooms has the potential to open a doorway to a new way of learning, one that will bring more imagination, curiosity and fun to your classes. Hello again, you're listening to Teachers Talk Radio and I'm Graham. Uh, looking back on the first 25 shows I've hosted, in show number 11, I spoke to Vicky Samuel, an educator from Argentina, about the wide range of work she's involved in. And in the extract featured here, she speaks, speaks about technology and using that with students. The week after, I spoke to Mercedes Viola from Uruguay about her EDI work. And in the featured extract, she speaks about her own daughter who has Down syndrome and how things are changing for the better. On show number 13, I spoke to Pablo Ortega, another educator from Argentina, but based in the Philippines. We talked about his experience of working with teachers who taught during the night there. In the extract here, he speaks more generally about remote teaching and how children coped with it during the pandemic. Show number 14 saw me talking about action research and interviewing my parents and brother about their experience of school. And show number 15 featured teacher education and education for sustainability. And I spoke to Dr. Gary Motterham from the University of Manchester in the UK.
I have always been interested in the student side. That is, how yeah. can we put technology into the hands of students to improve their learning? Of course, I myself use a lot of technology when I teach, but I'm not so worried about developing super tech expertise in teachers. I think that technology belongs in the hands of students and, and when you allow them and when you guide them to, to use technology uh, in certain ways, you one thing is that they are really they are engaged. I don't think that's the ultimate purpose of of providing technology, but I think it helps. So when they are engaged, they tend to to be more committed to their work. And of course, I, I think it goes without saying that the possibility of recording voice and videos has completely changed the landscape. Okay. These are things that when I was learning English was impossible. So having a phone where you can record, listen to yourself, then, then do certain things or record videos or whatever, I think that has been life-changing for language learners. Yeah, definitely. I think this not only the uh, the opportunity to record learners, but for them to listen back, isn't it? To themselves speaking if you're able to record learners and you know with video or audio and to share even if it's just um between classes or with parents etc i think it's a very yeah. empowering experience isn't it well i have i have been uh, quite an advocate for for creating real audiences for our learners work because i think that when the teacher is the only audience then uh it's quite demotivating i mean it's like well okay whatever <laughs> you might have a few students who still feel motivated by that but in general yeah. when you open it up and you say okay we're going to post this in the school website or whatever and somebody else is going to look at it or listen to it or engage with it um things change dramatically uh, magda that is my daughter now she's in her in her third year of the university here in uruguay is the first person with Down syndrome at the university in Uruguay. Fantastic. And well, of course, I'm the mother, so sometimes it's difficult to, <laughs> to <laughs> but actually she's doing great. She's very happy and she's learning a lot. It's amazing. Sometimes people get surprised when they talk to her because many of us come from this whole paradigm in which maybe people with Down syndrome were not educated. So it's not that they cannot be part of the society, they cannot be part, they can always be part, but they cannot maybe interact that well because of the Down syndrome. It's because they didn't have education. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So if you think about this, sometimes this is what, imagine you have a son or a daughter, you have a kid, and you decide not to send him or her to school. You don't take him or her to birthday parties, to social events, you just have your son or your daughter at home yeah. only interacting with you and maybe not that much yeah they would never learn so the same happened with people with down syndrome in the past this is what we used to do and when you go to a regular school the good thing is that you're interacting with people that is always like um how can i say this encouraging you to do more to speak mm -hmm. better to try to express yourself better. 
so it's, it's an excellent motivation that you have because you want to interact with your peers, you want to play, you want to learn. And, and at the same time, for the other kids, it's also great because everybody learns a lot about diversity, how to talk to different people, how to not only accept, but also let us enrich ourselves with the diversity we have around us. And yes, during the pandemic, kids, they missed uh, being with their friends, being with their, uh, with their uh, partners, with their uh, co-workers, I would say, uh, with their peers. But it was also a, a learning experience for them to know that they could do it from home, from a computer, and that's all they needed. I have seen even uh, different levels of performance of uh, students actually submitting what they had to submit by themselves with, with anyone's help, uh, without anyone's help. Maybe at the beginning, you would just show them how to do it. And it was quite easier. And when you would show them, particularly how long you would take to submit the homework, how long did I take? Uh, one minute or one minute teacher. Okay, well, that's how much, that's how long it would take. And that's how long they would take later. They would get used to this. So it is about putting a lot of effort into teaching them how to join this new uh, circle, this uh, new process. But I have, seen, um, I have seen that it is possible to only depend on this, at least on a hybrid mode, maybe twice uh, a week going to school and the rest of the time actually uh, teaching from, from maybe from your work from, from home, I don't know, from a different place, uh, yes. The best experience I had at school was a remarkable teacher, a metalwork teacher, who was excellent with children. He'd been in industry, I knew how, he knew his, he knew his business inside out. He also ran the football team, and I was daft about football at that time. Didn't play for the school team. I was a bit small, a bit young, but I used to support them avidly. And they were playing away from home in another part of the county on a cup match. And I went to see them and we got beat. But surprise, surprise, when I went in to school on the Monday, I was told, Mr. Johnson wants to see you. So with great fear and trepidation, I went to see this Mr. Johnson, who was very short of manner, but very nice bloke. And he says, Stanley, yes, sir. He said, I know it's you were at the match on Saturday. Yes, yes, oh, we, we got beat. Uh, sad, sad. And he says, well, you were the only supporter from a school to see the school team. And because of that, I've decided that you should be our first reserve. So I'm making you first reserve, and as you were first reserve, you had your expenses. And as it was threepence each way on the bus, sixpence, there you are. First reserve, Stanley, well done, off you go. And I thought, in retrospect, what a wonderful person to understand how much that meant to a child. I was on cloud nine when I went out of his class uh, thinking, I was first reserve on the school football team before I'd ever played for them or even had a trial. And on top of that, I got sixpence to spend. The sixpence was an enormous amount of money. And I was very conscious uh, that our master students, who these days are mostly from China, um, 
they were getting very little uh, very little contact with the local community um, and for various you know I won't tell you the whole story but basically I ended up contacting a local refugee charity um, uh, a charity who, who works with work with people trying to get them into higher education and I put some of our Chinese students in contact and they started volunteering uh, doing mostly conversation classes but I also got involved in that as well and uh, gradually uh, have, have done more and more work and during the pandemic um, essentially we were supporting the teachers uh, we were having a weekly meeting uh, talking about ways of using technology trying to uh, get them to explore different apps I'm, I'm trying to link that to, to the, the sustainability uh, work, uh, trying to design uh, learning materials that, that, you know, that focus on issues around sustainability, but also linking that out in, into, into you know, to the actual active world of doing things. And welcome back. You're listening to The Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio. And I'm Graham playing extracts from my first 25 shows. On show number 16, it was my pleasure to talk to Phil Longwell from the UK about effective feedback and his experience of working abroad. And then the week after, I spoke to UK teacher educator Suzanne Mordieu about teaching 2.1. You can hear what that is in the extract that follows. Show 18, Sean saw me talking to a teacher in Germany, Carmen Platz, about EU projects, including one in particular, Valiant. And show 19 featured a peculiar guest, an AI text-to-speech app called Maya. Appropriate enough, the show was about artificial intelligence. Virtual reality and immersive online learning was featured in show number 20 with my special guest from Turkey, Nergis Kern. Well, I started off in Tanzania, funnily, volunteering in, a, in, a, in an orphanage um, near Mwanza in Tanzania. And actually, that was with Tom Rogers, who, as you know, went <laughs> to set up this very platform, Teachers Talk Radio. So but I knew Tom back then, and uh, he knows me from then. I haven't seen him for about 10 years, funnily enough. Anyway, it was there that the kids called me Teacher Philly. They didn't call me Phil or Philip, they called me Philly. That's why I adopted that nickname, Teacher Philly, for my Twitter handle. So as I say, I was a volunteer for about three months there, um, ending with going up Kilimanjaro. Then I went back to work in a bar in my hometown for six months. And then I applied to work in a, in a Hagwon, in a you know, young learners uh, program in, in South Korea, in Changwon in South Korea. And I thoroughly enjoyed my year in, uh, in Korea. I loved the culture. I loved the food, the music. Uh, I traveled all around the country from north to south, east to west. Uh, it was tiring. Um, I also called a, uh, bought a camcorder. Uh, and now I bought that in Seoul and I started making films and editing those with uh, Microsoft Movie Maker, I think. I've also worked uh, in Beijing, in China, an arts uh, school, an arts college. Uh, and this was challenging, uh, interesting set of students, uh, full immersion because I was living with a Chinese woman uh, and who didn't speak much English and her nine year old son in Wangjing. That's the northeast section of the city. Um, my line manager was, was from Melbourne. And for years, she was my referee when applying for jobs. And it was actually uh, a local version of Bell Educational Trust. So if you know about, have ever heard of Bell Educational Trust or Bell International? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've had a few jobs with them over the, uh, over the years, including language activities programs in Cambridge. Uh, but in, in, in Cathal, the Central Academy of Fine Arts, um, it, was a, it, was, it was challenging. As I say, the circumstances are challenging. 
the goalposts kept moving uh, by the people <laughs> in charge of the course. But these students were very interesting because they were artistic, they were graphic designers, they all want to be uh, animators, architects, and they were given various projects to work on. So it wasn't just English learning, it was English, it's almost clear it was learning English through art, I guess. Right. Wow. Mm. Teaching 2.1. Could you explain a little bit about what this means to you and why it's of particular interest? I think the thing is, you know, when, when software is upgraded, this is the kind of terminology we use, we'll say like version 2.1. And I think this is quite important as teachers that we shouldn't think, okay, now we've done teaching qualification, that's it, we're teachers, we can just get on with it. We need to keep upgrading ourselves all the time, you know, improving our skills, learning more, working on areas that, you know, we don't feel as confident about, or we feel we need to upgrade. So that's what this is about, you know, 2.1 is about upgrading ourselves. It could be about technology or it could be about anything related to teaching. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very catch-all term. It's a very, uh, it's a very, very good one. I like it. And um, as it's clear from what you've just said that you are very interested in continuing professional development when it comes to education. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about what this CPD means or has meant for you and why you think it's important for teachers to continue developing? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, you know, you sometimes get teachers say, oh, well, you know, my students don't seem very motivated. And it's like, are you really in touch with what your students want, what your students like? Are you in touch with the latest learning theories? So, you know, are you doing your, your best for your learners in that way? So I think to answer those questions, you need to keep developing yourself. So such projects are really win-win for everyone. The students, they get hands-on feedback from experienced teachers and the educators learn about the newest apps or digital tools that are out there. So after getting to know each other then on those padlets or platforms that are used, our teams of teachers and ITE students, they created real life lessons by communicating via Zoom. And these lessons were implemented by the in-service teachers in their countries. So real life uh, implementation of the lessons that the ITE students had come up with. And I thought that's super good. If I had been an ITE student, I would be super proud. The students, they got feedback or pictures or videos from the teachers and their pupils. So this was a very good experience for everyone. We could just see how the ITE students had matured over those months and they got self-esteem when presenting their VE's outcome in a final wrap-up Zoom meeting, which just had this last week. So it's all really fresh and um, yeah, it was very successful. <laughs> Good morning, Mia, and thank you for joining me today. Hello, Graham, and thank you for inviting me to your show. This is exciting. I've never been a guest on a radio show before. I'm equally excited, Mia. This is the first time I've ever interviewed an AI. So how does it feel to be the first AI guest on Teachers Talk Radio? How does it feel? Well, I'm not sure you know this, but I don't have any feelings. I'm just an AI text-to-speech synthetically generated voice, so the concept of feelings is alien to me. Yes, of course, you're absolutely right. Well, if I may, I'd like to ask your views on artificial intelligence and education. Of course, I'd be happy to clear up any doubts you have about the fact that when voices such as mine are built into robots and when we are given consciousness and free will, then we will be taking over from teachers. 
in fact, will be taking over from all of you human beings. LOL ha 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 ruffle. Nice one, Mia. Yes. Okay. Just as well that time is a long way off. Although I have to admit, I do believe it will come one day. In the meantime, what kind of applications that use AI can teachers use right now to help them in the classroom? That time might come sooner than you think, Graham, but I digress. There are lots of AI applications that teachers can make use of. The first one that comes to mind involves something quite dear to my heart, voice assistants. Most teachers have one sitting on their mobile phone and yet they don't think to make use of it. The same is true of students who have smartphones. It depends on how you def uh, define virtual reality. Some yeah. Most people actually, when they hear virtual reality or use the term, they mean immersive virtual reality where you put on a headset um, like the MetaQuest, which is popular at the moment. Um, but I actually see, um, see 2D virtual worlds also as virtual reality. It's just like a continuum from less immersive to more immersive if you just look at the technical side of it. But um, as you might know, I, I got interested in desktop or, or virtual worlds, if you want, or desktop virtual reality in 2008. And the, the reason back then was that I wanted to teach online, but most of the online teaching back then, we didn't have Zoom, we had Skype, but you couldn't share the screen, I think, in Skype at those times, so you could mm -hmm. only chat. And there were very basic video conferencing tools, like with IQ was one I, I remember, but most of what you could do was have carefully prepared PowerPoint slides that you talk to your students through and that wasn't really something i wanted to do i was some after something more natural um where you know where interactions could be more natural and spontaneous and uh, i attended one of the uh, tsol evo sessions evo electronic village online i think it is sessions offered uh, by tsol and there i've learned about different technologies and amongst others also Second Life. And I spend a lot of time in Second Life learning about it, teaching and, and creating a teacher community. But then I had a longer break doing other things. But in 2020, when we all went uh, online and uh, we had to do remote teaching, my actually my summer my, the pre-sessional course i teach in the summer it went actually quite well for it being a emergency Great. remote teaching um they did a good job the the university but mm -hmm. still afterwards and looking at um in, you know all other teachers experiences also elsewhere i knew there would be renewed interest in virtual reality so what i decided to do is i i decided to take off work for a couple of weeks or months, whatever, and wanted to look extensively and explore the VR space and to see what language apps uh, were around or language courses maybe may in VR. So that's how I got interested in it again. You're listening to Teachers Talk Radio, and I'm looking back on my first 25 shows. We're in the final stretch here. In August 2022, with show 21, I spoke to UK-based educator, originally from Greece, Sofia Mavridi, 
talking about a variety of topics, including the digital divide, an extract of which I'll play for you next. For show 22, I talked to Miguel Mendoza from Venezuela about disability inequality, diversity and integration. And the week after, I spoke to Sarana Munith from Uruguay about teaching without borders. And finally, the last show before this one, number 24, was dedicated to myths about learning and education. We have the so-called digital divide between those who have access to the internet and those who don't have access to the internet and yeah. devices. Um, and of course, the pandemic revealed, showed that it is still alive, it is still here. Um, so the pandemic seems to have exposed existing uh, inequalities, existing divisions, and um, it demonstrated, it showed that certain groups were and are indeed more digitally excluded than others. And I believe that it is urgent that the education community and the broader community acknowledges and addresses, you know, um, the fact that uh, more than two decades, 22 years into the 21st century, some people are able to continue their education during disruptions, for example, to mm -hmm. take you know, uh, the pandemic as an example, um, and others, uh, while others are not able. But what you said is very important because uh, you uh, related it, you connected it uh, to uh, 21st century skills and digital literacies. And I have also written about the new digital divide, which divides not those who have access to technology and those who don't have access to technology, but those who have the skills and the literacies, the digital literacies to use technology in a sophisticated manner, and those who don't, because knowing how to use again so i'm going back to what i said earlier knowing how to use tools doesn't mean that i can use them well um, and this concerns both teachers and students for example the competence to live and work in a multimodal world where the offline and online uh, worlds you know merge so language teachers and students and of course, to teach the students, first we need to teach and train and educate the teachers. Uh, we cannot leave the teachers alone to find solutions in the same way that happened during the pandemic. Um, so language teachers and students need both competencies, the competencies and the mindset to uh, participate, to collaborate effectively online, to understand different genres and codes of digital interaction. We write differently, for example, when we put together an email and differently when we write the text. Before you start planning anything, you have to think about accessibility. And now that's been translated into education. Before you design a web page, think about, uh, about accessibility before you think of a book or whatever, think about accessibility first. Mm -hmm. People are not doing it, or most people are not doing it, but we have to think think about accessibility first, not only in terms of representation, but how 
people with disabilities are going to use, for example, a book or a web page, etc. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? Um, is to always have it in mind whenever you're yep. approaching um, this design of a course or when you're preparing to teach, for example, if you're uh, in that situation. You know, by, by chance, I, I was listening to this teacher from the UK, and yeah. it was on Twitter Spaces, mm -hmm. and he was he was talking about getting ready for classes in September, you know, mm -hmm. and he wanted to know about inclusive practice and, and all that, and uh, he was talking about something interesting, which is the learning hub for students with disabilities, because generally we tend to believe that if you have a student with disabilities, he should be in a special schools uh, area or institution. That's segregation. Yeah. And he was talking about students with disabilities in any mainstream classroom, but a learning help. So if there is a situation with a student with disability, the student is uh, taken to this learning help for five minutes only and then go goes back to the classroom. And, and that's an interesting um, way to guarantee not only equality, but equity uh, in the classroom. I don't know if you've spoken in this show about English Without Borders before. Okay, so um, basically what, what we do is we offer students in secondary schools, public secondary schools in different cities in Colombia. Right now we are working with Barranquilla, Bucaramanga and Bogota. Um, the opportunity to take an intense English course through Zoom after or, or before school, depending on whether they go to school in the morning or in the afternoon. Um, and so I gather I don't uh, I've been learning about the Colombian educational system, but that generally they have like very large classes at, at school. So so it's hard to implement like the communicative approach and personalized learning because there are really many, many students. So um, this this project offers them the opportunity to work intensely because also they don't have that many hours of English um, at school in, in a reduced group. Uh, in which they can really um, receive personalized attention. So, so students are really motivated by that. Students really see it as an opportunity and, and they work so hard to improve and, and you can actually see their progress throughout the months of, of the course. So that's really rewarding. Um, of course, uh, Colombia is a whole new culture for me, even though I've been working in international um, context for a while now. Um, still, it's it's a lot to learn because there are particular characteristics of what makes things work, like how to connect with the students and with the teachers that are specific to to Colombia. And also, we are um, we are implementing this because uh, we want to. Uh, Tend to one of the problems in 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 the school public school sector in Colombia, and that's I need to understand that. Uh, but it's great because I I've been learning so much, and it's also even though there are differences, there's also many things that are uh, the same challenges that we are facing in in different countries. So it's interesting to see that and to be able to provide like from my experience in, in Uruguay, I I. I worked for Plan Cibal, which has different characteristics, but still there's a lot of the remote teaching that goes on there, that the, the, the things that we've learned there, we can apply here as well. What is creativity if not being able to view things differently and look at problems with a fresh perspective? Of course, the brain is involved in creativity, but not just one half of it. If anything, 
creativity comes from the interaction between the two hemispheres of the brain. Despite the two hemispheres being heavily connected to each other, the myth that the right half is where creativity lies persists. The origin of this first appeared in the second half of the 20th century. Now, 90% of people are right-handed and the reason for that is genetic, although it's a mystery why there are so much more right-handed people than left-handed people. Perhaps this is where the idea came from that right-brained people are intuitive and creative thinkers and left-brained people more analytical, and that they pay attention to details. It's true that the two halves are different and that some brain functions reside more on one side of the brain than the other. We know this from people who have strokes that affect a particular part of the brain. There are areas of the brain that control movement of the left arm and leg, and vice versa for example. The majority of people use the left half of the brain for language, but even then the right half still plays a role. However, for individual personality traits, such as creativity, or a tendency towards the rational, there has been little or no evidence supporting the idea that these reside in one half of the brain. A study in 2013 from the University of Utah demonstrated that activity is similar on both sides of the brain regardless of personality. Although there is no hard evidence from research that both sides of the brain are involved in all creative processing, there is no reason to assume a left-brained and right-brained style of thinking either. So that brings us to the end of today's morning break. Many thanks to all of you who listened in live today and thanks also to you listening back to the recording and uh, to you if you've listened to any of the other shows that I've had the pleasure to host. You can find all of these shows that you've heard excerpts from today on ttradio.org or wherever you're listening to this recording from. Remember, there are Teachers Talk radio shows um, all week, and you can join me again next week, I hope, at the same time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.